Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Backstage With, conversations with your favourite theatre actors and creatives. Hello, I'm Mikey Worrell. My guest this week is a monarch having a break from the crown. Gavin Spokes was playing King George III in the London production of Hamilton when the West End went dark the week before the UK went into lockdown in March. You might have recently seen him wrestling with Mel Gedroyt as Harry in Company, working his way up to a million pounds as the Major in James Graham's Quiz, or as pollster Andrew Cooper in Channel 4's Brexit the Uncivil War. Here's my conversation with Gavin Spokes. You were playing King George III in Hamilton in the West End the day it all shut down. What do you remember of, of that day? Uh, I think there'd always been this sort of uh, the sniff and the rumour, hadn't there, that we were possibly all going to be shut down. And we, at that point, we were all amazed that we were still on. I think a, a lot of people were feeling very tentative about going into work and would start to ask management about, you know, are we okay? Is this okay? Should we be doing this? Um, I'd got changed in my warm-up gear and then there was a big kerfuffle outside my dressing room because I'm near one of the front of house manager's offices. In fact, I think it's where they keep the money. Oh. I should just break in there one day. Don't mind me, Cameron. But I, yeah, there, there was a load. Of, I remember one of them saying, we need to print the letters, print the letters. And I thought, uh, I think we're not going on tonight. And then we were called to stage by a company manager. And they said, right, we're not on tonight. You can take your stuff home or leave it here. You know, it might be a couple of days. I, rem- I remember the company manager saying it could, might just be a couple of days. And I think a few of the old and ugly a lot amongst the show looked at each other and thought, yeah, we're, we're, it's not a couple of days. And then um, got on the train home. So when you're, when you're walking down the stairs from your dressing room, if I remember correctly, yours is up, because I interviewed John Robbins in there, it's up a, f- a f- couple of flights, isn't it? Yeah, right at the top, yeah. What is going through your head when you're walking down to stage level? Because I'm guessing that's not a call that happens very often at your show. No. Uh, it very rarely happens in any show, I think, does it, really, at that sort of time? But this was about, this was, a, I can't remember if it was before warm-up or after warm-up. I think it might have been after. But like you say, when everybody's called to stage immediately, you're like, it's one of two things. You're either closing or somebody has had an accident or something bad's happened. And I think we'd all just knew it was coming. So I was quite resigned as I was going down the stairs thinking, well, I'm going to go home tonight. And that, in a, in a selfish way, you do that thing of going, oh, I get to go home tonight. Mm. Then the next part, of the, the next flight of stairs, you start thinking, I might not be coming back maybe for a few weeks, for a month. And then, and then when we go on stage, it was a bit, I think there was a sense of relief, actually, because I think the West End was waiting to be shut down officially, and we weren't even then shut down officially. The guidance was don't go to theatres as opposed to theatres are now closed. And we just needed clarification. <laughs> I mean, that clarification has kind of continued for the next six months, didn't it, really? The sort of. Yeah. So, yeah, it was a bit of a sort of stroll downstairs and a bit sad. We all looked at each other and gave each other a hug. Well, actually, I don't think we were hugging. I mean, we were started social distancing then. You know, but we that's so interesting because I've I've heard I've I've asked everyone I've spoken to this this question just to get a sense of what it was like in every theatre. Yeah, and it's really funny how come from away went and had a piss up in one of the dressing rooms. <laughs> And Juliet, most of them went home. A couple of them went to the pub. Yeah. Um, so it's just really interesting to, to gauge how people felt and whether or not people were still comfortable to have that close contact. I, I think I think some people were. I think the younger ones probably were. I mean, it's a very tight 
our castle of Hamilton is very tight. It's a very happy built, really happy building. All departments, everybody. It's a really nice place to go to work. And I think everybody was just a bit sad. So because there's so many of us, I think to organise going to the pub, it would have been a bit, um, would have been like, well, we have to get on WhatsApp pretty rapid as opposed to a smaller company like Come From Away going, right, well, let's, mind you, there's probably a good 20 of them, isn't there, actually, I would imagine. Yeah, because they've got all their swings, haven't they, as well? Yeah. But no, we didn't do that. But I live out of London, so I knew I thought, well, I could get a train home and have a beer. Yeah. Yeah. How long had you been in the show at that point? It must have only been two or three months, right? Five. Five months. Oh, it had been five. Oh, gosh. Yeah, I think... Well, I think the thing is, because they hadn't released any production photographs of us yet. So a lot of people are like, oh, well, you must have just opened, because I think nobody had seen the new cast, any sort of photos released or anything. So I suppose some people thought we'd, we'd only just opened. But I, I'd opened a couple of weeks earlier because John left to go and do Les Mis. And I, I um, joined, I think my first show was like middle of October or something. Oh, right. Okay. So that was a little bit before everyone else. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, but we see, yeah, so I've been there a while, but it's still, you know, it feels very much like unfinished business. You want to get back to it. Yeah. Well, that was, that was what I was going to ask. Did you feel like it had been criminally cut short at that point? And it was like, oh, hang on. I'm, I'm still not finding my feet, but I'm, I've still got stuff to enjoy here. I've never, I was so happy in that building. I love it. I, I mean, the show is incredible. The people are incredible, particularly at this moment in time as well it feels like such an important piece of theatre to be involved in. And I just felt privileged to be in a cast of lovely, talented people. And we were looked after so well, the Americans and the British people in the building. It was just, when I say British, anybody working in the building, I should say rather. And it, it was a really happy place. And that doesn't always happen in the West End. I mean, sadly to say, you can be on jobs that are just a bit tougher. But I mean, I'll be honest, I'm on stage nine minutes, so it's the loveliest gig in the West End. But um, in terms of like, pressure on your body or voice or anything, it's, it's nice. So I was just very happy. So I, yes, it, I'm gutted not to be there. Your role is, is so loved by anyone who sees the show, I think. What were you enjoying most about nine minutes on stage time aside? What, what, was, the, what was the second best thing about playing the king? <sighs> this is shallow. Probably, oh, this is really shallow. It's fine. Oh, probably the costume. Because I'm so used to playing sort of slightly downtrodden people or villains. <laughs> if it's screen stuff, I usually play horrible people. If it's plays, I'm, yeah, I don't often get to dress posh. So being in that costume is just the best feeling. It, and, like, and having four people get you ready before you start singing. You know, putting your cape on and the crown and mics and buttoning you up and your, oh garters it's just crazy i've never i've never 20 years in the business i've never been so you know dressed up like a peacock and i've really enjoyed that part of it how much did it change it for you the first time you put that on how how much difference did it make yeah massive massive because it's that thing of you know some people don't get affected by what they wear when they work in terms of roles they're playing but in a role like that, it's like if you're wearing, if you're playing a policeman or a soldier, putting a uniform on then takes you up another level. And it's the same with King George. You're dressed as royalty in the most refined gear known to man. And actually your costume, if you take it side you're actually playing a king, your costume cost a fortune to make and you're wearing it. It's mental. Wow. You fill a million dollars. And then to go look at everybody, and in terms of character, you're looking at everybody else in the audience going, None of you could even afford to wear anything like that. 
<laughs> and then that, that's the other part that is so joyful is to have a, a relationship with audiences. And that's what Lynn and Tommy and the guys have created so beautifully with that moment of, of the king, his direct address. It's just genius. It's just brilliant. Have you ever had such a reaction to something you've done yourself on stage that's not been a, an ensemble moment? Uh, yeah. I mean, I've been very, very lucky over the years. There's a few parts I've done that have given you the same kind of reaction. I mean, it's not quite the same. I mean, when you sing, like, sit down, you rock in the boat in Guys and Dolls, when you finish the first end of the song and the audience usually erupts and you get stand innovation in the middle of a number and then you do an encore, that's quite crazy. But getting a cheer when you walk on stage as, as the king's always... <laughs> you have to... But you, in character... Oh, I hate saying in character, but you can use that beautifully to like, yes, well, of course you'd applaud me, I'm the king. But then Gavin Spokes goes, well, that's nice. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't happen very often yeah but I mean Francis in One Man Two Governors there was a lot of that you know adulation which is for the ego part of an actor's it's nice <laughs> I'm not going to lie people don't enjoy it in the business I think they're lying <laughs> sure sure when you're when you're at the front especially in your first number and people might not necessarily feel comfortable if you look directly at them mm. in, in terms of the direct address is, are you are you looking at anyone in particular? Is there a certain type of person that you look to make eye contact with or does it just happen? I, I try and play a lot of the song to as many people as I can. Um, and there might have been somebody that catches my eye that I think is being a little bit rude or disdainful and not really paying attention. So I might try and play a line or a specific action to them to maybe scare them. And that usually works. And then for everybody else, that's usually amusing, but they can't see what I'm actually trying to do to somebody. But then you can't isolate the rest of the audience by just playing it to the few people at the front. It's a, the Victoria Palace is a big old house. You're very conscious of playing, playing the size of the theatre and, and, and trying to let the audience think that you're talking to every single one of them. And that's always a key in any monologue or, or speech or solo is that you'd want everybody in the audience to feel that you're addressing them individually. Mm-hmm. The only, the only real time you get to interact with anyone else on the stage comes in, in the Reynolds pamphlet. And I guess you can have quite a lot of fun with that. How, how mischievous have you been during that number? I'd still like to go back to my job, mate. So <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I have a little... <laughs> yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm not going to say too much because I, I am quite mischievous. But I, yes. <laughs> I can't dare say. Oh, come on. What's the naughtiest thing you've done? Well, oh no, you can't get me doing that on here. Uh, I used to, Safiso, who took over from Giles as the yeah. second Burr, I, I did a couple of weeks with, with um, Safiso. And I used to blow him a kiss when I was sat on the chair. And he couldn't, he couldn't keep it together, bless him. He, he was a terrible corpser. He would just go. And I'd, I'd either just blow him a kiss or wink at him, you know, or a little wave. And it, was all, it would only ever be something small, but... Safiso couldn't then sing, so we had to stop at one point because he couldn't carry on. So that 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 was a, I was a bit. I just like I love being on stage with other actors or other performers, anybody on stage. And the king does spend the whole show on his own, so being able to share it with other actors and just have a moment of interaction. Try not, no, certainly not. I mean, bizarrely, one of the notes there is to upstage um, whoever's playing Burr, but not to upstage, but be able to share in a little moment of joy is lovely yeah 
That's that's funny. It's almost like a little power struggle, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. There's there's that going on. And then the the moment where in the choreography where uh, the king shuffles in front of Hamilton, do you ever do you ever whisper anything to Hamilton? Say anything to him? Uh, I th- I think I've tried. You can't really. He's singing. You're singing. You can't. Re- yeah, it's a bit tricky to do anything there. <laughs> I like this. You're t- you're trying to dish the dirt on the bits where we're. we're- <laughs> Just you know, this is this is the stuff that people want to know. I don't do, yeah, I don't do it in there. It's usually when you cross people leave, leaving the stage, when you can catch people's eyes. You know, there's some people who are incredibly focused in the moment, so you'd never really want to try and. Well, I'd certainly never want to try and throw people, but there's always a little look for some people. They like a bit of cheek. Sure. I mean, Carl Queensbury's a he's a bit of a terror himself, and Trev Dion Nicholas is just like. I mean, we, it's a good job me and him aren't on stage together. I mean, that would be great. Oh, I think me and him need to do something together. Me, him, Jason Pennycook and Carl. Oh my God, that would be like heaven. You could do that, like, you know, like the Four Phantoms thing and the Valjeans, you could have the Men of Hamilton. You could. You could have like, yeah, I don't know. What could we do? I don't know. Yeah, something like that. There's, uh, there's something in there, definitely. When was the first time you saw the show? I saw it not long after opening. Mike Gibson's one of my best mates. So I went to see him, well, not see him, but he was in it and got me a house seat, which I had to pay for. It wasn't a house seat like comps. No, that, that is, doesn't exist. So I went to see it not all long after that opened. I think it was actually January or February. I could be wrong. So I saw it then and then saw it twice before I joined it as well. And at what point did it become a thing in your head that that was a part that you might get to play? I remember when Mike was auditioning for it and, and he'd struggled to even get seen and I wanted to be seen for it and they wouldn't see me for it. And then I kind of forgotten about it. Other work came along and then they approached, I was very lucky they approached me to see if I was interested in doing it in town. And I was like, Oh God, yes, please. Yeah. I'd like to have a crack at that. So that's when it came back around really about a year and a half later, I suppose. What's it like replacing in a long runner, especially a Broadway transfer where the creative team aren't necessarily accessible, like if, if they were in, over in the country anyway? Yeah, good question. Because I think often when you... I've been quite lucky. I've only done one cast change before this and that was in a play. So I was a bit apprehensive going into a musical doing a cast change. But I know John Robbins a little bit and, and other people who are friends of mine are in the show, Jason Pennycook, and they'd all said, look, the resident team are brilliant. They are very, they keep things fresh and they're not too, the show doesn't feel too didactic. I mean, yes, there are certain moments where we have to be in certain light spots, but you can have a lot of creative freedom. And and in fact, the ensemble will have that as well. They're all given a sense of identity in each of those roles because the the ensemble are are the complete heartbeat of Hamilton. They're extraordinary in it. And each of their movement is so specific to them and the moment being so precise. But the Tommy, he, Tommy's seen me do it quite a lot and given me great notes. Lynn's been over and seen it. Um, the resident team in the UK are brilliant, always trying to keep it fresh. And it's not so prescriptive that it keeps it really joyful. And they'll let you know if you go too far, if they think it turns into caricature, you know, um, or to camp or whatever. And there is a certain amount of freedom within a boundary. And I think that's so... Uh, indicative of how Tommy and Lynn and those guys wanted to, the show to, to continue in its success. So it's, it's lovely, actually. 
Were any of them in your audition? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, the Americans, apart from Lynn, Lynn was making Mary Poppins. But um, yeah, I, well, I met, I met Tommy and Lack. Yeah, they're in my final, yeah. In fact, my final was at the top of the theatre on my own because I couldn't go to the recall. I was in rehearsals for a play and they, um, they wanted to meet me the next day and I, I said, I can't, I can't get out of rehearsal. My director won't let me out. And they said, well, we're not going to give you the job unless we can have this final meeting. And I'm, I was like, fucking hell, what am I going to do? So I said, I just, I don't know what else to say. I can't get out of this. I mean, we open next week. I was in like last week of rehearsals. And Tommy was like, no worries, come to the theatre at 6.30 and we'll go and do a little playthrough after warm up." And I was like, oh, okay. Oh, wow. So I had this really informal audition and chat with Tommy and, and Alex Lackamore at the top of the building with Richard Beadle and Chris Hatt, Paul Willer, casting guy. And we just had a lovely chat and I sang for them and luckily got the job. I get the feeling that people being that accommodating doesn't happen that often in the business. <laughs> no, it doesn't. I have never been involved in any of those big other shows. I have in plays that have been big successful plays, but in musicals, I have kind of tried to avoid, not to say that I've been lucky enough to be offered them or casting them or even get them, but sometimes you hear horror stories about, you know, crumble on five. You know, the direct, you what? Yeah, just get on your knees and cry on number five. And that's all you get. And that kind of stuff would just, I think, just infuriate you because you're, you're all individuals going into a show and you want just a little bit of guidance and help. And some shows, they become so big, they become machines. But the guys at Hamilton have kept it so fresh for each cast, I think, internationally. And that's what's made it so special but on top of its own brilliance. So I've, Spencer, please. sorry, the dog's whining now. What do you oh, it's want? all right. What do you want, pups? Just sit down. We'll go for a walk later. Um, yeah, so I think I've been, uh, yeah, I think a lot, of, I think it's not as easy for some other people in other shows, but we're, we're very lucky on Hamilton, I know that. The the film version of, of the Broadway production was released in July. Have you noticed an increased interest in the show over here? Obviously, it's been difficult because you haven't been on. Um, or do you think that will come when it reopens? I think it will come when it reopens. I met, I was away camping in the summer and uh, somebody mentioned Hamilton when I was buying a sandwich. And I, oh, I don't, I never usually wear like memorabilia or anything, but I had, we were given these lovely little gilets from Hamilton with Hamilton on it. And it was a bit chilly and I was wearing this thing and the lady went, oh, have you seen it? And I said, well, I'm in it actually. And this woman went crazy. She went absolutely crazy. And the family came out of the back of the sandwich shop. So, no, we can't wait to see it. We saw, we saw the tent. We saw it on um, Disney. And, oh, we're going to have to go and see it now. And that, that reaffirmed, which I think the Americans believed, was that if they open up to the masses, everybody can see it for their £59 for the year. It will make them want to go and see the show. And I think that's exactly the case. It happened with Les Mis. It's happened with lots of other big musicals over the years. There's a film with West Side Story of Oliver. It doesn't mean that the shows don't carry on. And Hamilton is so unique live that I think it excites people and think, oh, I've got to see that. So that's the response I've, I've felt if from friends and family as well that haven't seen the show yet. They're all, oh, I watched it on Disney. I'll definitely want to come and see it now. So that, I think that's worked. That's great. Have you watched it? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Was it surreal to see a whole new company of faces do your show? No, not really. I, it did make me feel I did really miss everybody because there's moments, you know, any line of job or any line of work, you can always attach 
your personal memories or journeys or moments to a specific sound or music. Like there's a moment um, in one of the songs where I know I'm backstage with Jason Pennycook sitting on a table chatting about what we're doing the next day. So it makes you think about, oh, I haven't seen Jace for ages and little things like that. Uh, and then also you might sit there and think, yeah, he doesn't do that very well. I, I like how so-and-so does it or she does so-and-so. And that's been it. That was interesting. But no, I just loved it. I just enjoyed watching it. I thought it was great. Well, they did it so, so wonderfully. Um, although Jonathan Groff's saliva, my goodness, do you, do you create as much spit as him during the I, King songs? I don't think as much as him. Somebody wrote on Twitter the other day, who creates more spit, Gavin Spokes or Jonathan Groff? And I, I thought, I'd be, I'd, I don't spit like that. Richard Beadle, who's the MD, he'd have told me if I was anywhere near like that. I don't know. No, not that bad. Because that was next. I've never seen anything like no, it. No, no. But a friend of a friend was in, um, what's the show? He did uh, a thing with a plant. Little Shop. Little Shop. And this person was in it with that and said, can confirm that he is, he is a good spitter. Wow. Yeah, he's very spitty. Well, it's good, nice to have a talent. <laughs> in the past, there's been this narrative around filmed musicals that it, it would take away the audience. And, you know, if, if we film it and release it, no one will come. You touched on this a little bit before, but do you think that actually it has the opposite effect? Yeah, I do. I, I, I think it excites people. And it also gives an opportunity for those that would never see the show because they couldn't afford things financially, either to get to London or a touring venue to see something. It can then excite people to want to then go and see it live. They wouldn't have kept doing them if they thought this was going to happen. The National Theatre, you know, was the exponent, was the, the driving force, particularly with NT Live, and they wouldn't have kept doing it if they didn't if they thought it would they'd lose an audience. I think the two can run side by side. I mean, why not? The more people that get to see theatre, and particularly a piece as important as Hamilton, the better, I think. Yeah, I agree. Um, I, I do have to ask you about Company because I absolutely loved that production. Did you ever think that your job might be to wrestle with Mel Gedroich? No. <laughs> no was like, all, all my fantasies came at once then, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, oh, what a legend. No. How do you how do you look back on that experience of that of that show? It was a hard gig. It was quite a hard job because we were so intrinsic and throughout the whole piece, which was, you know, when you get asked to go in for company, you're like, oh, that's nice. I get a little scene, get a song, and then I can piss off for half an hour and nobody sees me again. But we were quite busy throughout the whole show. And quite rightly so, you know, Marianne and Liam and the team wanted that. And but I'd look back with a lot of fondness. It was a wonderful people and like you say, a wonderful production. And I got to meet, I got to meet Mel, who I literally considered like, I've never had a sister, but I mean, she's as close as I've ever had to one. Just adore her. She is just, yeah. If I, any one thing I got from that job, which is not the case, but if there was only one thing, if I got Mel Gedroich out of it, that's not bad. That's a good day. Brilliant. What was it like? I mean, you got to sing Sorry Grateful, which is such a Sondheim standard. When you're, when you're in the development for this brand new production of, of a Sondheim, which doesn't happen very often, what, what is going through your head when you're going to work every day and thinking, God, how lucky am I that I get to do this? Yeah, you, do the, you certainly do that a lot. I, you're probably too young to have seen this production, but I, in 95 or 96, I saw the Don Mars production. Mm -hmm. with Adrian Lester. Yeah, Adrian Lester, yeah. I, I was definitely too young to have seen that. Yeah. 
And I was about to go to drama school and I was really into plays and telly and film at that point. And I went to see Company and it's the only thing that I went to see and I queued up for Return straight after and I watched it again. And it Oh, wow. Was, the same day? Yeah. And, it's, and I've never watched anything twice since, unless I was going into a show. And it left such an imprint on me that when I got asked to be involved with this, like something else came up and it clashed with and my wife was like, why on earth would you not be in this? This is, this is going to be a seminal production. We're switching Bobby. We're switching Amy. You're going to get to be in company. You might even get to meet sometime. And then I was like, oh God, now you're right. That's mental. Yeah. And then all those things happen and you're like, this is crazy. This is an amazing thing to be a part of. But it was a, it was a hard gig because we, we weren't allowed any holiday over the period of the run. And over Christmas, we were all quite ill and it, that was tough. It was a tough gig just to everybody keep on terms of their vocals because you can do a, you, most plays you or telly you can do if you've got a cold but doing musicals when you've got no voice is hard work in fact you can't do it <laughs> so that that was the only tough thing about it what was it like developing a revival of that of that scale and that level i because you talked to johnny about this haven't you johnny bailey yeah yeah i have yeah i think i listened to that one i mean i wasn't involved with any of the workshops so when I when I when I joined for the rehearsals, I think we had a six week rehearsal process. It was it felt very standard. It felt like we're working on a piece, and a good director like Marianne treats every piece as if you're it's the first time it's ever been done anyway. So that's kind of how you feel. So there was a sense of um, excitement because we were doing something new with it, but with a good director, you get always get that sense of excitement anyway. Mm. And then, I mean, how often do you get to do a, a revival where the creator is is present? It's, it's not a thing that happens very often. When someone like Stephen Sondheim is in the room, how hard is it not to stare? Yeah, it was weird. <laughs> Some people are really cool with it, but I, I, I wasn't. <laughs> it's Stephen Sondheim. I mean, if you're a fan of musical theatre, it is, but it is. And this, I don't think this is an overstatement. This is, you're basically meeting musical theatre's equivalent of, of Shakespeare. Mm. He will probably go down in musical theatre as, well, possibly the greatest writer of musical theatre. And to just hear what he has to say, you're like, oh my God, you're talking, you're talking to me. Oh my God. Yeah, it is mad. And I felt, I do feel very privileged that I got to work with him. Yeah. Yeah, and he, he was there, I know he was there for your, the studio time for the cast recording. When he's giving you a note, I mean, are you even able to listen over the internal screaming? <laughs> uh, well, funnily enough, loads of us, a couple of us were poorly when we were recording the album. So all you're thinking about is, God, and my voice sounding shocking. Um, but he, he was very, he didn't give me any notes until um, we did Poor Baby. And he came on the, on the, on the earphones and said, oh, uh, Gavin, can you just... Um, you just need to imagine you're really fucking drunk. It's the end of <laughs> really fucking drunk, okay? Go again, go again. I was like, right, okay. Sarah, Bobby, I worry. <laughs> and he's like, that's better, that's better, thank you. One thing I love about asking questions about Stephen Sondheim is people always do an impression. <laughs> and just yeah. hearing and everyone's oh, everyone always goes for the same style but it's it's just one of my favorite things yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> sorry that just that was brilliant um did you always want to be an actor uh no not always 
when I was little, little, I wanted to be a policeman. And then I, I played cricket to quite a high level and I thought I might be a professional cricketer. And then I got dropped by my county when I was 17. And they, they in fact, what happened was they, I was having lunch with some of them after a, a net session in the morning. And one of my coaches said, oh, well, we found out you've got into drama school. I said, yeah, yeah, I've got a place at drama school. And they went, right. Well, we think this is probably the time for you to really pursue that because we're not going to renew your contract for next year. And I was like, oh, probably not going to make it as a pro, am I? And they said, no, nah, you probably make semi-professional. You might play minor counties cricket. And I went, right. And that was it. So that, that was, the, I always was desperate to be an actor by that point anyway. I thought, yeah, this is probably more likely. How old were you at this point? 17. Okay, so still young enough for it to not be an issue. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, being, being because I always thought if I could have made uh, a go at cricket, then I always could have gone back to acting, mm. have retrained. But when they just said, you're not going to be good enough, I went, oh, right, okay. <laughs> That's kind of made the decision for me, which I was so lucky that I, both of these things were on the table. I mean, I feel very privileged. I'm lucky that, when I say privileged, I wasn't privileged, but um, I felt lucky to be in that situation. So where, where did you train? I went to Lippa. Oh, cool. Yeah, when it had just opened, yeah. So we hear lots of stories about what people's experience was at drama school in London or, or in the South, certainly. Mm. How much do you think your experience varied compared to most people because you were up in Liverpool? Good question. I am very grateful because it cost me probably a third of the price. And in those days, your tuition fees were paid. In fact, in those days, I got offered a place at a couple of other London drama schools. And they were then saying, well, well, now you've got to apply for a scholarship and you might not get a scholarship and then it'll cost this much. And I was like, I, I can't, I can't do that. If I don't get these scholarships, I can't go. And Lippa was done through UCAS and John Moore's university. And I, well, your fees are paid. And in those days you could get a grant and my mum and dad were on a low income. So I, I got a grant to help pay for my uh, flat that I lived in. And there's no way I would have been able to have, have done that if I probably gone to a London school. I mean, I could have probably studied at a London drama school and commuted in every day, but that would have cost a fortune. So the, the financial implications of studying Liverpool were massive, but it was cheaper. All the staff had come from Central, so I always felt that that was quite exciting. And I'd grown up with London as my closest city. So I'd seen all my theatres in London as a teenager. And to be up in the north, I could thought, well, I could go to Liverpool every man. I can go to the Royal Exchange. And, and it opened my eyes up, just living not in the south. And I, I'm very grateful for going there, particularly in the 90s. And under a time where it was, you know, the Labour government had just got in, there was a real sense of prosperity and excitement. There was a change happening. You know, Thatcher had finally gone and the Tories were gone. And it felt like a land of, of, of excitement and opportunity. And... Um, it, it was when I when I went there. It was an incredible place, and, I've, and and also there was a load of different courses. There was a sound technicians course, you know, who were guys who were sound engineers in studios, wanted to record albums. There was stage managers. There was pop musicians training. There was um, community artists degree program. So you weren't just stuck with a bunch of pretentious actors. You were with a load of random people from all over the country, and it was a very working class institution. You didn't meet many people from Surrey. Lipper, they'd all gone to Radha and Lambda and, and Guildhall, but Lipper was a, and I think still is, it's, a, it's, a, it's the working class Lambda of the North. 
think. So when you when you finish and you're catapulted out into the world, how how hard was it to start out, and how quickly did did work come for you? Uh, that oh, it, I don't want to say anything that's disrespectful to the institution, but it was it was very new. So when we did our showcase, we didn't have a huge amount of agents come. And any agents that did come, even though we did a straight acting course, there were a couple of musical theatre agents because what they'd found was that a lot of our students could sing and were being cast because I was the second, no, third year of graduates. A guy called Andy Langtree and Lisa Stocky had landed the, the, the first original leads in Mamma Mia. And I think what that did was then meant that they thought, well, we can find leading actors who can sing at this place. So we had a lot of musical theatre interest when we graduated. And I went with a musical theatre agent and I, I struggled first two years. I did a play, I did an advert, which never got shown. I did a concert of a musical, did a small opera. And then my wife got a job in America and we disappeared to the States for four years. And then I didn't work. And then I came back and it took another four years to get going again. So I've always worked on and off till I was 30, but it wasn't until I was probably 28 that things started really happening. Yeah, probably 30 really. That's so interesting. Um, Long time. (laughs) So when you when you disappeared off to the states for four years and then you came back for another four years before you got your another acting job, what were your what jobs were you doing in in the mean? What were your survival jobs? Um, So I yeah sorry I think I got the what dates wrong. So I came back in '06 and then from the states. So two years, I was doing. I did get the odd advert. I got the odd job. So but three years from '06 to '09. I was on a building site. Oh, wow. Yeah. I, my, my family, my brothers, are, one of them's a carpenter, the other one's an electrician, and they've got builder mates, and they needed labourers. So I spent a good, good two and a half solid years on a building site. Oh, they, they were amazing. I mean, I'd be going, Dave, my boss, saying, mate, I've got to go south, and I've got an audition for Billy Elliot. They want me to wear tap shoes. And, you know, just, they were amazing, and it kept my feet on the ground. I mean, I've never been so fit in my life, but, Yes, I was on a building site, really. When I graduated in in 2000, I worked in a sales company in London, telephone sales thing. I've done all manner of fucking weird shit. What's the weirdest one? Uh, I was a pool cleaner when I lived in America. uh, And we went around the back of a house and they were shooting a porno. That was... Oh, God. (laughs) And they asked us if we wanted to be in it. (laughs) And the pool cleaner said, yeah, he he was a Mexican dude. And he, he said, yeah, I'll be in it. So in, he was in the back of shop while there was action going on. Was that an equity production? <laughs> <laughs> and I, I just bottled it. I was like, I'm not being involved with that. And then, um, and then I've, been, oh, I've been a follow spot for a hypnotist in one of the casinos. Oh, that's quite cool. Yeah, that was cool. Oh, toilet cleaner, well, loads of random stuff. So where, where were you in the States? Las Vegas. Oh, wow. That unique place to live for four years. Yeah, it was. Yeah, my wife was in um, the Celine Dion show there. Um, nice. So we had, the, we had the most amazing four years because she had half the year off paid holiday. So we used to just go and travel in the States. So we, we got all of that traveling thing out of our system, really. Um, and, and then I got to a point of me going, I kind of really need to go back now, darling. I need to be able to be pretending again. And then luckily my wife agreed to come back. That was in 06 and we came back, yeah. How hard did you find it to re-establish yourself when you came back? Oh, really, really bloody hard. Because I don't think I'd really established myself in the first two years. I'd done bits. And then when I came back, I didn't have an agent. My old agent didn't want to know. And, yeah, 
from 06 to 2010 were pretty tough. And then my first sort of big gig was the, the, the world premiere production of Flashdance the Musical. Oh, at the Shaftesbury. Oh, well. Oh, no, no. This, this was the tour. Oh, wow. Oh, God. Yeah, this was in 08, 2008. So did that start in Manchester? Have I completely made that up? Mate, no. No, I remember. We were in Plymouth. We started in Plymouth. Oh, Plymouth. Oh, of course, because they've got all the, the capacity to build all yeah, the sets and stuff. Yeah. And that's what's so hard at the moment. You see, like, Plymouth are really struggling with shit. And I've worked at that theatre like two or three times, and it's a wonderful place. It's a wonderful city. And that, that theatre is, like, it's an integral part of that city, and it's just heartbreaking what's going on at the minute. But, yeah, so um, I did flash dance, yeah. <laughs> and that was that was uh, Vix Hamilton Barrett, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's a talented girl. Oh, insane. Absolutely insane. So when, when you're on that tour, and did you come into town with it or did you just do the tour? No, no, I was I was ceremoniously dropped for town. Oh, God. No, I was, I, I, to be fair, the part I was playing, I was far too young, really. But I don't think any old mug wanted to go and play the part I was doing on, on the road for 50 weeks of the year. So um, I, I, see. Was, I just needed to get moving. Mm. You said um, how, however many years it was when you came back that, that it was really tough. How, how do you keep yourself going, just, just waiting in perpetual faith that something is going to happen? Uh, faith in your own ability, uh, having a good partner, having like, your best friend be your wife and your biggest fan, and having some really good friends that just kept reminding you that you've got to stick at it because you've got ability or something you know and i'll give mike chibson a lot of that credit because you know he'd had an amazing career and i came back from america and he was like oh we've got to get you an agent and people like him really kept the faith and then i an agent took a punt on me and said i'll take you on and then it, it gradually started shifting but i'm quite um i'm quite driven <laughs> yeah i'm quite driven. you have to be yeah and and I think what what's really sad is that a lot of people leave the business early. And I remember like from my year, I remember after six months, like half the year had stopped, had just gone now. I'm not doing it anymore. And you're like six months. You know, it took it like can it took me till I was 31, 32 when I got a job at the National, which was my my dream was to work at the National Theatre, and it took 12 years of waiting. And you've got to be in it for the long game. And if you're good enough, you'll always work. Mm. you're in it long enough you'll work so what was it like when you got that job at the national in the end yeah i must admit that was i bought a coffee machine <laughs> it's a good way to celebrate yeah i thought oh god i'm gonna go back no i've been doing a lot of regional stuff at that point i've been doing shows in birmingham oldham and ipswich and northampton and places and so work had been coming i've been working quite well as an actor for about two years and then i'm jamie lloyd who was an old friend of mine auditioned me for She Stoops to Conquer and I got a small part in that and I thought, right, now I'll maybe change my agent and then it kind of sort of snowballed on really. Yeah, this working at the National kind of changed everything. And Alistair Coomer, who's the head of casting there now, was one of the casting I think he was deputy head of casting then. He gave me some great advice and was a big champion and then I got casting one man two governors and you know kind of that's been it really. It's been great since then. What, when you look back on the last 10 years, obviously get, getting a job at the National would be a highlight, but what would be the next, the next highlight, the next milestone you came to? Playing Francis in the West End in Governors. Oh my God, this sounds it's so... 
I, this is weird. You feel a bit like you're just boasting. But, uh, no, because I'm asking. It's not boasting at all. Uh, yeah, playing Francis was incredible. I still can't believe I got to do that. Being involved in Guys and Dolls and getting an Olivier nomination, that was overwhelming because I used to... I'd gone to watch... Uh, around the same time I saw that production of Company, about a year after was the seminal Richard Eyre production of Guys and Dolls at the National, which I saw Clive Rowe in. And Clive kind of blew my mind. And I thought, I want to be a bit like Clive Rowe. <laughs> and Clive's a mate now, and I, I find that really fucking weird. Really weird. <laughs> still? Um, I yell still. Every time I work, I work with him recently, and I, I, I said to him, I still find it weird being here with you. Yeah. So that that's always nice. That's a nice reminder to think I saw that and then got to be in it and get nominated and thought, oh my God, I got nominated for the Olivier Award and singing at the Olivier Awards. That was terrifying. And then I've been so lucky, mate. I I feel so privileged and lucky to have done the stuff I've done because I've got a lot of mates who, who are brilliant and talented and lovely people. That <laughs> Shut up. He's agreeing with you. Yeah, you better be. <laughs> I've been I've been very lucky. There's been lots of lovely highlights. Lots. Do you have a favourite theatre that you've played? Because I mean, doing the ENO and the Savoy and all of them, Gilgood. I mean, I love the Gilgood. Gilgood's lovely. I like the Noel Coward. Um, mm. I love the Palladium. I won't. I've only done one night at the Palladium, but everyone always says the Palladium is their favourite. It's because because it's a Matcham theatre. Do you know about Frank Matcham? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And here, the beauty of his theatres is that. They may be enormous, but they're not deep theatres. They're quite short, so you, you're never very far away from the back wall. They might be a bazillion miles up in the air, and they might be very wide, but they're not deep. So they constantly feel intimate, but massive at the same time. And the Palladium feels like it's giving you a hug. It is the most brilliant theatre to play. Um, so I love that. I love the Almeida, which I've done, and the Olivier. I've been very lucky to do that. Haymarket. Oh, I love, I love them all. I just love theatres. I'm more interested in being a theatre, walking around it when there's nothing going on than when there's something happening, actually. No, I, I know exactly what you mean. I, there's something really special about just being in them. Yeah. Walking onto a stage, I always try and go a bit early for warm-ups, to walk on stage when there's nobody from crew, nobody from stage management or band, nobody in the house. If you can be the only person stood on the stage... You're like, wow, this is amazing. And it gives you that little sense you had when you were a kid the first time we went. So I try and do that quite a lot to get that feeling. Yeah. Do you, do you remember the first stage you ever stepped on? Oh, my God, that's a good question. The first stage I probably ever stepped on, other than like a school play, was in St Albans when I was asked to go on stage by King Rat in Panto. And I went on stage there. That's, that's probably my earliest memory. What about in your own right as a as an actor? Professionally? Or not? Probably with the MYMT at the Edinburgh Festival to feel like I was in something that was really, really good. But I, no, I, no, I'd done stuff at school that... Actually, no, I know exactly where it was. I was in a drama class at school and I started doing impersonations of being stuck in a lift and I remember a lot of people laughing and I thought, oh, I like this. And I was only about 10 or 11. I think that was the first time I thought I like entertaining and I think it caught, that's when the bug caught. Do you remember that feeling? Did you get that feeling in your stomach? Does it come back? Yeah, yeah. I'm a bit of a laughter junkie. I do, I do like making people laugh. 
whether it's in a pub or whether it's on stage. I just enjoy laughter. It's always been, it's one of the best aphrodisiacs. It's one of the things that makes us all, just nothing better than laughing. I agree. I agree. I don't really laugh much in my own life, but I do like making other people laugh. Well, it's hard to laugh at the moment, isn't it? Oh, a lot. It, mate, eh? Oh, dear. <laughs> it's awfully dreary. Um, now, uh, I didn't get to see this production, and I'm, I'm still kicking myself, but when you did Quiz, everyone I've spoken to raves about that show, and you got to play the man in the middle of it. It's not... Mm. I mean, I didn't see it, so I can't comment, but I'm guessing there wasn't a lot of laughter. It was actually. It was very funny. It was it. Oh no! Yeah, it was. Yeah. See, not, I didn't see it. I wish I had. Not necessarily. Well, it's going to. Well, they were meant to go. Ow! I've just pulled a scab off. Ooh. I didn't mean to do that. Ow! <laughs> um, sorry. Sorry, Lisa. That's okay. Um, there's blood pissing everywhere, and there's not. Uh, <laughs> no, I uh, no. James Graham writes very funny scripts, and Charles wasn't necessarily Charles Ingram, who was the major. The part wasn't written as probably Comedy Central, but there was enough laughs in there. And the whole the play was nominated for Best Comedy at the Olivier's. It didn't win, but it was nominated for Best Comedy because James does this thing of lightness of touch and uh, humanity to all of the characters he writes that makes everybody likeable. Um, it's going off on... It was meant to be going on tour in this autumn, but obviously that's not happening. But they were touring the, the play um, because it's been a big hit on ITV since with them. which i've also not watched because I, I was oh, like what? well i want to see the play first oh really yeah i don't know i mean unless you think it's different enough to not matter they're very different beasts because in the play act one is very much the case of the prosecution and act two is the case for the defense and the telly doesn't re- the telly gives a lot more of the personal journey of them two so you could probably watch them and they'd be very independent of each other okay I'll give it a whirl. When you're playing someone who is real, and it, and especially with something that is in fairly recent memory, did did you what? Did you go back and watch the the episode of the documentary? Yeah, yeah, I did. I didn't watch the documentary because that's um, the documentary. You, you'd probably find out it was all, is is slanted towards the producers. So it depends on what side of this coin you want to to look at. And um, I watched the the footage of him in the chair quite a lot and also interviews because most of the time I'm not in the chair in the play. I wasn't um, in, the, in the chair that a huge amount of the play, probably probably a good half an hour of the play, but the rest of it I'm doing, I was doing scenes with the, with um, wonderful Stephanie Street played my wife. So there was a lot of conversations with her on, on stage. So, and we, I got to meet him a couple of times before, so that was it. I, I, I tried to lose. When I did it in Chichester, I was determined to lose a load of weight because I was like, I can't play a major in the army being nearly 17 stone. So I was running and eating lettuce leaves and I dropped quite a bit of weight for Chichester. And then it got into the West End. I thought, oh my God, I'm going to have to lose the weight again. So then, then I went on another little bit of a diet for the West End. Then we got good reviews and I thought, oh, okay, I don't have to worry now. I can eat chips again. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Obviously, having not seen it, I, I don't know what the outcome is in the in the story. Um, but do you do you think it it was it was what the producer said? Uh, there is no way that they did it via coffin. Not really. Not in a million years. No. I mean, for what, for what it's worth, I played them as innocent because if I if I I had to play them as innocent. Well, Steph and I both agreed and James Graham, the writer and Daniel will believe that we have to play them as innocent because if there was any part of us 
that were trying to deceive everybody then so everybody would see through it. So then we wanted the audience to make their own decision. And because there was so much evidence against them, if we were playing guilty as well as being told we were guilty and having historically in real life been proven as guilty, we'd never be able to sway the audience's mind. And also, I did enough research to just know there's no way they could have done it that way. <laughs> not, in a, not in a fucking million years. If they did cheat, they didn't do it that way. Okay. That's fascinating. They didn't do it via coffin. Obviously, everyone is hope. I mean, I mean it's fair, we're fairly 99.999% certain that Hamilton is, is coming back. Mm. What's your hope for the next six months? What, what do you know? What have you been told? What, where do things stand? Uh... We're all hoping to go back in some... The, what we're told, the official line, we've not even been given a date, is as soon as possible next year. Whether that is March, whether that is June, we don't know. And, I, and do you know what? I don't think anybody knows. I mean, we see what's going on with pubs. What, oh. you know, where, where are we going to be with theatres? And I, I personally think, and this is just my opinion on it, until we've got a test that can give us a quick response of an answer of positive or negative infection. I'm not sure how viable it will, will be. I don't know, I don't want to sound like a pessimist, but I think to have audience um, uh, faith and, uh, what's the word, um, confidence, there needs to either be a vaccine or a, a good test and trace system. And if we could have a test where everybody walked into the theatre and they get a result in two minutes and they have to pay an extra two pound on their ticket price, Right. And then you know you've not got anybody in the building who's who's got it. That that would then that would be great. When that happens, I don't know. If not, then there's ways that we can get around it. But the the big shows in town I know will really struggle to go back with social distancing. They can't afford to run big big old shows with half an audience. Have you been into town since the theatre closed? Yes, actually. I did a I had to go for an audition. So I walked from Euston down to the South Bank. So I walked through West End, Covent Garden, and then across the river. And I couldn't believe the West End. It's heartbreaking, isn't it? Mm. It's absolutely heartbreaking walking around. And it's all the businesses that you know just thrive on the theatres. And that's all the little calves that you know that have all gone. How many shops are empty? It's heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. What a year, eh? (laughs) Yeah. What do you do to to keep some light in your life during during this time? Do you, are you a musical theatre fan? Like, do you listen to lots of show stuff, or do you keep it completely separate? Is it just is it just the day job? Uh, I do, I am a fan. I don't listen to him a huge amount. I did listen. I listen to Hamilton every now and then on for running. I um yes, listeners. I believe it or not, I do run. Um, I do, I uh, I listen to Hamilton when I'm running, that's fantastic. And I listened to um, the last five years the other day, the original Broadway cast recording, because somebody mentioned it to me and I thought, you know what, I haven't listened to that for years. But I, I don't really listen to musicals. It's not really my cup of tea. Um, I mean, they are, I love them, but it's not that I will, yeah, they are very much work. But I do, uh, I've got a wonderful little girl, a wonderful wife, the dog. So lockdown's been quite lovely, actually. <laughs> I mean, apart from all the shit we've all had to go through, and I mean everybody, I've been able to spend so much time with her. Being able to do bedtimes has been wonderful, and um, lots of time with the family. I mean, financially, it's terrifying as it has been for a lot of people, but 
because uh, it's just shit, you know. It is that. Yeah, my wife's choreographer and she just lost all of her year's work and still hasn't really picked anything up, you know. So, but we're all going through that, aren't we? I mean, everybody in our business and in other businesses are all struggling. Just, it just needs to um, do one now. <laughs> this coronavirus needs to do one. Very much the, the moral of the time. Um, well, listen, thank you so much. It's been so interesting Thanks, uh, to hear about all your all your stuff. Because one thing I, that struck me when um, when I was... Your agent's website is really good, by the way. Probably the most comprehensive of, of any out there that I've found. Because a lot of them are shit. Well, um, I'll tell him that. No, it's really good. Um, your little show reel it was great. Um, no, honestly, it really it was. It's really cool on your CV how it's you don't do a lot of long runners or, or replacements. It's all like very much like carousel and guys and dolls and and all your own I standalone try, stuff. Yeah, I've always, I've been very lucky that I always try and do a musical, then a play. Try and fit in as many tellies as you can, but that's that's you know that's 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 just like throwing stones in a pond and seeing if any of them bounce back. Um, but it's. Uh, yeah, I've always tried to keep it varied because you've got to. Otherwise, people pigeonhole you. They do. And that's... Especially with musicals. They really do. Yeah, and I trained as an actor and I'm very aware that I've got friends who have done a lot of musicals and they can't get seen for plays and they're wonderful actors. You know, and that's, that's not fair. Yeah, I mean, hopefully all of that or some of that will, will change post-corona you would you hope you know the optimist in me you hope mikey yeah the optimist in me too yeah i hope so i hope so. well we'll see uh, well, listen thank you so much for doing this no worries mate thank you very much enjoy the school run <laughs> cheers mate that's it for this week thanks very much to gavin and to wayne perry for connecting us Friends, we are nearing the end of Series 5 of the Backstage With podcast, but please get in touch if there's anyone in particular that you'd like to hear from in Series 6 when we come back early next year. You can email me at mikey at backstagewith.com or send me a message on Instagram at backstagewith. Until next time, thank you very much for listening. Listening.